I'd like for you to turn in your Bibles to Romans 11. And uh, while you're turning to Romans chapter number 11, our text for our message today, and we are lesson number six of rightly dividing the word of truth, and our, our theme text is 2 Timothy 2.15. We're going to be studying Romans 11, but I'd like for as many of you as possible from memory to uh, say Second uh, Timothy 2.15 uh, out loud with me. All right, Second Timothy 2.15, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, it's good to be in the house of God today, and we thank you, Lord, that it is indeed uh, your house, and uh, these are your people. And Father, I pray now that you would help uh, this time that we have together as we study Romans chapter 11. Lord, uh, give us clarity of thought, help us to communicate clearly and concisely, help us to make good use of our time. We pray that uh, you would just give this congregation a spirit of attentiveness and understanding, open up our mind to see what the Word of God teaches us, and uh, Father, I pray that these truths that we present today would be edifying, encouraging, instructional. And God, that as always would give us the hope that we need, Lord, that there is a great hope for the future, not only for us, but for Israel, for this world. Even so, come, Lord Jesus, thank you for the blessed hope and promise that we have, God, that everything's going to be okay. Lord, help us now and guide us in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Our lesson today is Roman numeral 7. And Roman numeral 7 is, is a question, has God cast away his people? It's a great question, and the answer to this question is the key to understanding where we are at God's timetable, as well as where we are heading. Let me say this, Israel is the key to understanding the prophecies in the Scripture. Without understanding Israel's place as God's people, the prophecies that we read about will be confusing. We'll end up applying them in the wrong way, and ultimately um, it will just create more and more confusion. Last week we saw some severe warnings about supersessionism. Now, if you were not here last week, the term supersessionism is commonly referred to as replacement theology. What that means in just layman terms is that there are many religions out there, both Catholic and Protestant, that believe that the church has replaced Israel. And there are some stern warnings. Now, as we read these, just like I said last week, I am not saying that everyone that has um, has been has falsely believed in supersessionism is going to be guilty of this strong language that we're getting ready to read. But the point that I want to make is that God does put some very strong warning against any type of teaching in which we believe that we have replaced his people, the Jew. To the church of Smyrna in Revelation 2, verse number 9, Jesus says, I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich, 
And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Strong language, folks. People who say that they're Jews or that they have replaced the Jews and they haven't, Jesus says it's blasphemy and Jesus says that it is the, it is Satan's church. So, you know what? There are a lot of teachings that are satanic in, in their origin. Satanism is not just like the heavy metal groups with the pentagrams and all of the craziness. Satan is subtle. And he is an angel of light. And the way that Satan presents himself is just like he did in the Garden of Eden. He's going to present something that looks good and attractive. He's not going to come at you like a, 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 a in a red leotards and a pitchfork. He's going to come to you looking very much like Jesus Christ. And if you're not familiar with the Bible, you are in danger of being deceived by his wiles. And then he says to the church of Philadelphia in Revelation 3 and verse number 9, Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee, because thou hast kept the word of my patience. I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. And so God gives some very stern warnings to the church when it comes to supersessionism or replacement theology. Now, our question is, has God cast away his people And the clear explanation and answer is found in Romans chapter number 11. Look with me, uh, first of all, at verse number 1. I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. The context here makes it clear that His people, look at it with me, it says, hath God cast away his people? And then Paul goes on to say, God forbid, I'm also an Israelite of the tribe of Benjamin. So obviously the his people is referring to Israel, not the church. Now Paul was saved and he was part of the church, but in the context of verse number one, he's not saying that I'm one of God's people because I've been saved. He's saying, I'm one of his people because I'm a Benjamite. I'm of Israel. And so obviously the context makes it clear. Has God cast away Israel? Well, obviously in verse number one, the answer would be God forbid. And then in verses two through five, we're going to see that even though Israel has rejected God and rejected the Lord Jesus Christ, there are some Israelites who end up excuse me, getting saved. The early church was filled with thousands and thousands of people who had accepted the message and had repented and believed on Jesus Christ. Verse number two, Paul goes on to say, God hath not cast away his people which he foreknew. Wot ye not what the scripture saith of Elias, how he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets, 
and dig down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. But what saith the answer of God unto him? I have reserved to myself seven thousand men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Look at verse number five. Even so then, at this present time also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Listen, those there are Israelites, Jews if you will, that are saved. And those saved Jews are part of the body of Christ. Ephesians makes it clear there is one body. There's not a Jewish church and a Gentile church. The Jews that got saved early on in Acts and the Gentiles that got saved after Acts chapter number 10, we all got to be part of one body, the body of Christ. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Now, this remnant, if, if you hold your place here, and I, this is kind of an add-on, but I want you to look at Romans chapter number 9 with me. And as we're, we're seeing here in Romans 11, that verse 5 said there's a remnant according to the election of grace. I want to spend a few minutes here this morning talking about the election of grace because there's a lot of confusion in Christianity and has been for some 2,000 years regarding the term election. In Romans chapter number 9 and verse number 11, Paul here is giving an analogy and he's talking about Jacob and Esau. In fact, if you look at verse number 13, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Do you know that God chose Jacob before Jacob and Esau were even born? Now, if you recall, we read in Romans eleven five that um, it says that, um, excuse me, in verse number, uh, I've got to find my place here. Well, I'll get back to that. So look with me in verse, uh, Romans 9 and verse number 11. It says, For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger. Jacob was the younger. Esau was the elder. Now, this was a prophecy that one would end up serving the other. Probably the most important thing that we need to understand when it comes to the term election is that the church is referred to as elect. The nation of Israel is referred to as elect. God, according to his foreknowledge, he chose Israel as a nation. God, according to his foreknowledge, chose the church to call out for him a people. Now, listen, we, we believe and teach, and we'll see here in Romans 11, that God's original plan was for the Jew to receive Jesus Christ. But the Jew rejected Jesus Christ, and because of that, God opened up salvation to the Gentiles and to the whole world, to whomsoever will believe. And so that's a great message, that's a good news, that's a gospel for you and I. But Israel was elect, the church was elect, 
But notice that it says that the elder shall serve the younger, referring to Esau serving Jacob. Now, we have a whole narrative in the book of Genesis about these two brothers. And nowhere, absolutely nowhere, do you find Esau as an individual serving Jacob as an individual. So what is the prophecy referring to? The prophecy is referring to their descendants who would end up becoming a nation. The descendants of Esau became Edom. And we know the history in the book of Kings and the book of Chronicles that Edom as a nation, Esau if you will, ended up serving Israel when Israel was a strong nation. Israel became a mighty, powerful nation, and one day Israel will once again become that mighty, powerful nation. And so the term election is referring to a group of people, nations. It's not referring to individuals, and that is so important because Calvinism Calvinism takes the term elect and applies it to individuals. And folks, even even just a casual understanding of the Bible, all throughout the New Testament, we read, whosoever will, whosoever will, whosoever will. And so it's imperative that we rightly divide the Scripture and we don't, we don't assume that one thing means one thing if it contradicts what the Bible says in another place that's totally different. The only way that you can reconcile the doctrine of election is to see the context of it that every time you find election or predestination, it is not speaking to a single individual, it's speaking to a group of people, Israel, the church, etc. Now let's go back to Romans chapter number 11, all right? So this election of grace in Romans 11.5 is not referring to any individual It is referring to the Israelites who have collectively got born again and become part of the church. All right, look with me now at verse number 6, and we're going to see the Bible definition of grace. There is so many verses in Romans 11 that just obliterates the false doctrine that is so prominent and has been for 2,000 years of church history whether it's Protestantism, whether it's Catholicism, uh, so much false doctrine, if we would just take the Word of God in its entirety and believe it for what it says, it would solve a lot of doctrinal issues. The definition of grace, verse number 6, and if by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace, otherwise work is no more work. What does God's Word tell us? It tells us that grace and works are the opposite. You cannot be saved by both grace and works. Now, I have stacks of literature from both Protestant and Catholic um, sources, official sources, if you will, And in one particular pamphlet, I have underlined probably a half a dozen times, and uh, this is a pamphlet that is put out by Ligori Press. That's an official Roman Catholic uh, publishing company. And about half a dozen times, it talks about the sacraments of the church, mass, 
baptism, etc. All of these things, and it talks about uh, how that you can earn grace by performing these sacraments. That, for instance, if you're a faithful Roman Catholic and you partake in Mass, we call it communion or the Lord's Supper, but if you partake in their Mass, they believe that you just got some grace put on your account. And you've got your sin over here on this account, and then your grace over here on this account. You can go to, and you can confess your sins to the priest, and that gives you some grace. And hopefully when it's all said and done, your grace will outweigh your sin, and you won't have to spend much time in purgatory, and you can eventually go to heaven. Now, that is, for some of you that are unfamiliar, you, you listen to that and you go, that sounds crazy. Well, not to people that grow up in that. And so the bottom line is you cannot, if, if it's either works or it's grace, it cannot be both. The person, and you know what, there are people who down deep believe the same way even though they're not affiliated with any religion. You go knock on their door. I, I've heard, I've had this happen, if I've had it happen a hundred times, it's probably happened to me way more than that. Maybe not a thousand, but it's happened a lot. Uh, hello, sir. I'm Randy Mitchell. I'm pastor of Temple Baptist Church, and we're here. Uh, like to invite you to church. Could we ask you a question? Are you saved? Oh, yeah, I'm a good person. How many times do we hear that kind of response? Are you saved? Oh, yeah, I'm a good person. Well, that's not what I'm asking. People think, yes, I'm saved, and, and they, many of them might have accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior. But they're not basing that fact, they're not basing their eternal destiny or their hope of going to heaven on what Jesus did on Calvary, but rather their hope is based upon their performance that, yeah, I'm being a pretty good person. And most of them are not arrogant and wouldn't go out, come and say, yeah, I'm perfectly sinless and I'm holy. No, they, but they just feel in their heart of hearts that I do more good than I do bad. So yeah, I must be going to heaven. Listen, the scripture teaches that if you are trusting in your works to get you to heaven, then you are not trusting in the grace of God. You cannot have it both ways because the two are total opposites. You can't take two concepts that are opposite and say, yeah, I'm believing them both. You're either saved by grace or you're trying to save yourself by works. And I've got some really bad news for you. If you're trusting in works to get you to heaven, you're going to come up short. Now, you may come up a mile short or you may come up an inch short. But if you're climbing that ladder and trying to get to heaven, listen, it doesn't matter if you reach out, if you miss it by an inch or if you miss it by a mile, you missed it and you're plummeting down to a devil's hell. Everything that happens on the ladder of life between here and heaven trying to reach heaven is of no value if you miss heaven. And you know, most people don't miss heaven by an inch or a mile. They miss heaven by about 18 inches. What do you mean by that, preacher? The distance from your brain to your heart. There are many, many people, many Christians that, yeah, I'm saved because I have the right answers, but it's all in the head and it's not in the heart. When you believe in Jesus Christ from the heart, 
it will change your life. It's a powerful, powerful experience. And so the Bible definition of grace is that you cannot earn it. It's either grace or it's works. Verse number 7, I've subtitled verse number 7, Be careful, but don't be cunning. And I want to show you the difference between being careful and being cunning. Verse number 7, What then? Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for, but the election hath obtained it, and the rest were blinded. Notice here how that... um, Give me a moment here. I'm back to the same thing that I got. I think I've got a mistake on my notes, and I'm having a hard time. Okay, I'm back on track. (laughs) Forgive me. A lot of information here to keep track of. So it says here that Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for. Notice how that Israel, which is many people, are referred to in this particular verse as a he, as an individual. And that is within the context. And this is the most important overlooked fact in all forms of false doctrine regarding election. Uh, Calvinism, if you will. Even though it is a he, an individual, the entity who makes up Israel, this isn't speaking of any particular Israelite, it's speaking of Israel as a whole. Ephesians chapter number 4 and verse number 14 says, that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. I wanted to give you that verse in conjunction with Romans eleven seven, and really the entire context that makes Israel as a group of people, not individuals, because any doctrine, now just file this away, any doctrine that requires you to connect a bunch of dots in order to make it make sense, it might just be cunning craftiness. And you know what? I've, I've read, I, I don't know how many books that I've read on Calvinism, uh, probably 15, 20 books easily. And the common denominator of Calvinism is that you have to have this complex system to make the Scripture say what you're wanting it to say. You do understand that according to Calvinists, whosoever doesn't mean whosoever. And they will take you on a cunning, crafty tour through different verses and say, see there? So, whosoever doesn't always mean whosoever. Well then, I I mean, I just look at it like this. Why would God say whosoever then? I mean, is this just some kind of a little cosmic joke that he's playing on us? Kind of a trick? I remember when I was a kid, I heard about other kids doing this. I thought this was so funny, i got to try it sometime. I took one of, is either my mom's or sister's old uh, pocketbook, and we tied some fishing line onto the handle of it, and we put it out in the middle of the road at night. And, uh, you know, somebody's going to come along and see that pocketbook in the road. They're going to stop, get out of the car, and come get it. And when they go to pick it up, 
we pull it away from them. And I thought, oh, that's, that just sounds like such a great prank, and so we're going to do that. And so me and a couple of the neighborhood, neighborhood kids, we hid behind a bush, and we did that. And uh, the guy came chasing after us, wanting to kill us. <laughs> I mean, we, we, we ran, and we got away from him, and we hid, but, oh, he was, he was cursing, and he was mad, and uh, I think that we would have gotten hurt if he would have been able to catch us. And I thought, that wasn't quite as funny as I heard it. But it's almost like Calvinism is almost like God saying, here, here's salvation. And somebody that's not elected can try to get that, but no, I'm just kidding. I, I didn't really mean you because you're not one of the elect. Listen, I, don't, I have a hard time believing that God is like that. And I don't have to believe that God's like that because I can understand that election in the Scripture is referring to a collective group of people or a collective nation and not an individual. Let's look now at verses 8 through 10. And uh, we will see here that there is a danger of rejected light. Now, listen, uh, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, you are here in a church service at a Bible-believing church. And I understand that there are probably many other churches that you could go to today and you could watch a better show. I understand that. And uh, I understand that not every church is the end-all, be-all, and every ministry has its strengths and has its weaknesses. I'm fully aware of that. But I'll tell you one thing that you will find here at Temple Baptist Church, you will find that the focus is on the Bible on the Word of God. And regardless of, and, and I pray this many, many times. I prayed it last night. Lord, help me to bring the congregation the truth from the Word of God. If I fail in any area, that is the area I do not want to fail in, is giving you as much Bible as possible. If you love the Bible, then you're going to love it. If you really don't care about the Bible, then you might find it very boring. But how many times have I seen people that have really rejected God, rejected the light, and they just keep coming to church, and they keep hearing the preaching over and over and over, and yet they don't respond to it? Oh, they know, yep, I know that's true, but they just don't do it. Or there is something about rejected light that makes the heart, the heart harder and harder and harder. You know what? Um, I have, um, have you ever been in a lightning storm and be looking at the sky and all of a sudden uh, one of these huge lightning bolts come down the sky and it just almost hurts your eyes? Now, that happens one time. And it doesn't happen repeatedly. But you know, you, if you've ever been around a strobe light, you get around a strobe light in a dark room and eventually you're going to have to close your eyes because you just, you can't, you can't handle that. And it's the same way light that is not responded to, eventually you have to close your eyes because the light will become uncomfortable and ultimately it will become painful. Verse number 8, 
According as it is written, God hath given them the spirit of slumber, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear unto this day. And David saith, Let their table be made a snare, and a trap, and a stumbling block, and a recompense unto them. Let their eyes be darkened, that they may not see, and bow down their back alway. The danger of rejected light. In verse number 8, we have a reference to some of Moses' last words to Israel. It's Deuteronomy 29, verse 2 through 4. And I'll not take the time to read it, but uh, if you're taking notes, it, it is on the screen. This is a total reference to where Moses said, and he prophesied that, hey, Israel, God still hasn't given you a heart to understand. Moses perceived that as long as everything was going okay, Israel would follow God. But he had seen it time and time and time again that when the circumstances change, Israel's heart would just go right back to Egypt, would go right back to grumbling and mistrusting God and mistrusting Him. And listen, that has been their personality since day one. Rejected light can be worse than no light at all. Isaiah 29 and verse number 10, For the Lord hath poured out upon you the spirit of deep sleep, and hath closed your eyes, the prophets and your rulers and seers hath he covered, and the vision of all is becoming to you as the words. Watch this. Let me, let me stop for a minute here. Pay attention to this prophecy in light of what's going on in America today. He says, the vision of all is becoming to you as the words of a book that is sealed, which men deliver to one that is learned, saying, read this, I pray thee. And he saith, I cannot, for it is sealed. And the book is delivered to him that is not learned, saying, read this, I pray thee. And he saith, I am not learned. I can't understand the Bible. I, I'm, I'm not learned. I don't, I, don't know, I don't know Greek and Hebrew, and I don't know all this, so I can't understand it. I can't know that I have the words of God. And then those that, that, um, that know and are learned, they say, oh, it's sealed. But the bottom line, folks, is God has given us His Word. And the problem is we don't need to change the Bible. We need to let the Bible change us. That's the problem in modern Christianity. Most of the men standing, as far as that goes, men and women that are standing behind pulpits in America today, you know what they're doing? They're not using the Bible to judge us. They are judging the Bible. And that's why they can explain away all of the precepts in the Bible and just do whatever our culture says is okay. Listen, there may be a lot of progressivism going on in America today that has gone continually and further away from our founding fathers of this nation. But the fact of the matter is, is before progressivism started happening in our nation, it started happening in our pulpits. I mean, homosexual marriage, women preachers. See, Pat, preacher, you're, 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 you're getting in some pretty forbidden territory. Hey, bottom line is I know what the Bible says. Yeah. 
And there has been no memo from heaven where God said, you know what, I didn't mean that. I, you, know, I, you know what, I woke up this morning and, you know, I, I've been thinking about that. I, you know, I was just, I was wrong. I shouldn't have said that. I'm, I'm going to change that, okay? God doesn't do that. And the concept more and more of God's people, why do people sit in a church when that is being done week in and week out and they never question it? Right there we have it, folks. Right there we have it. Oh, well, I don't know. I don't, I'm not a Bible scholar, so who am I to say? Who am I to judge? You better be someone to judge. Let me tell you something. Uh, to the best of my ability, I can say, I can promise you that I am standing behind this pulpit in honesty and integrity without any cunning craftiness, without any desire to make merchandise of you. My sincere desire of my life is to faithfully preach and teach the Word of God. But please do not trust me. Trust the Bible. That's the final authority. No ministry, no man, no denomination is the final authority. The Word of God is the authority. And if you don't know it for yourself, you better find out for yourself. Because your eternal destiny depends upon what this book says right here. What a danger of rejected light. Israel as a nation, rejected Christ. And because of that, their hearts were blinded. Now, God didn't do this arbitrarily. He did it much like He hardened Pharaoh's heart. God put some circumstances in Pharaoh's life. God created some circumstances in Egypt. And all it did was manifest what was already in Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh's heart became harder and harder because of the supernatural circumstances that God imposed. So yes, God hardened Pharaoh's heart, but it was not against Pharaoh's will. It was not arbitrary. It was just the simple fact that that's what Pharaoh wanted to begin with. And God says, you want to have it your way? Have it your way. That's exactly what has happened to Israel. Israel said when they crucified Jesus, the leaders of Israel said, crucify him, crucify him. Let his blood be upon our hands and upon our children's. I hate to say it, but God answered that prayer. They got what they wanted. They've been blind for the last 2,000 years. That doesn't mean that they're not beloved by God. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't honor them like the Word of God teaches. It just simply explains what has happened. How could a nation that is supposed to be God's chosen people be so far away from God today? You know, if you sometimes we as American Christians, we read the Old Testament, and we read about the Jews, and we read the New Testament about the Jews in Jesus' times, and we have a certain mentality of what Israel must be like. You go to Israel today and you're going to find some really, really interesting extremes in every direction. You're going to find extreme wickedness and godlessness in, in ways. You're going to find some darkness 
that you, you wouldn't even imagine would be coming from people that are supposed to be God's chosen people. And then you'll find extreme Phariseeism. My wife and I were in an airport not long ago, and there was a, um, there was a Jewish couple that at a certain time, and you, you could just see them, they were sitting at, at the, the gate waiting for their flight, and we're right next to them, and, and I'm just kind of watching. They had a little box that was strapped to their forehead, and they got their scripture out at a certain time. They went to the window of the um, the terminal, and they looked a certain direction, and they started chanting and reciting, bobbing their head back and forth out of their book. And I thought, that's pretty interesting. But Jesus explained and described that in his days. He said, they make broad their phylacteries. Now, I mean, they did that like clockwork. But Israel, they go through the motions, but they are not, their heart is very, very far away from God. Now look with me, uh, and i got to hurry here, verse number 11. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid, but rather through their fall, salvation is come unto the Gentiles for to provoke them to jealousy. Now if the fall of them be the riches of the world, and the diminishing of them the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? Did Israel fall or not? Notice the double usage of the word fall in both verse 11 and verse number 12. Have they stumbled that they should fall? Verse number 11 says, God forbid. But look at verse number 12. Now, if the fall of them be the riches of the world. So Paul's not being senile here. He's not being wishy-washy. He's explaining a truth that they have fallen, but it's not a permanent fall. They're going to get back up. And that is really the the whole purpose of this message this morning and the messages that we've been preaching for the last four or five weeks. Have they fallen? Yes. Is it permanent? Absolutely not. We see a New Testament fulfillment of the prophecy in the Song of Moses right here. And I don't have time to turn you there, but Deuteronomy 32, verse number 21. And because of their fall, salvation is opened up to the Gentiles. Why? Why did God open up salvation to us? Because He just loved us so much? Oh, I know, I get it. I know why God decided to save us Gentiles. Because when... He was on the cross. I was on his mind. He was thinking about me. I don't want to burst your bubble. I'd be fine with that song if we sang it. When he was on the cross, we were on his mind. He might have been thinking about the church, but he wasn't thinking about Randy Mitchell. He was bearing the sins of Randy Mitchell. And for that, I am very, very thankful. Why did God open up salvation to the Gentiles? The main numero uno purpose, very humbling, says right here in the text, to provoke the nation of Israel to jealousy. You're saying that God used us? God's using us? Yep. 
And you know what? I am perfectly okay with that. Because I was a Gentile outside of the commonwealth of Israel, and I was on my way to a devil's hell with no hope in this world. And because of this very fact, God says, I'm going to save you, Randy Mitchell. I'm going to save you, and you can put your name right in there. And I've got a bigger purpose in mind, but you don't have to worry about my bigger purpose. You just need to worry about my son, Jesus Christ. And if you'll trust him, then I will save you, and I will give you my grace. The text makes it so clear. He did that to provoke the children of Israel to jealousy. Verse number 13 says, shows how that we benefit greatly, but it's not about us. For I speak to you Gentiles, and as much as I am the apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify mine office, if by any means I may provoke to emulation them which are my flesh, and might save some of them. Once again, Paul's saying, Look, I'm the apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my office, but it's not because of you, Gentiles. It's because of God's people, the children of Israel. Now look with me at verse number 15. In verse 15, we see further confirmation that Israel is going to be reconciled. God's going to go from the Gentiles back to the Jew, for he says in verse 15, for if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? Notice it says, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? Crystal clear that God shall, that the receiving of them shall be life from the dead. It's going to happen. It's prophesied. It doesn't say that it might happen or that God hopes that it is going to happen he says, it shall happen. You know, it's one thing, it's one thing for free food to be given to a beggar. Now, if I'm a beggar and I'm hungry, I would be pretty happy about somebody giving me free food. And that's what's been going on for 2,000 years. The lost Gentile world has been getting the free grace of salvation. And that's a wonderful thing. But it's a different thing to be given some free food compared, compared to owning the farm and the food factory. When Israel is received back from the dead, if you will, then the farm and the food factory, if you will, the gospel is going to it's going to be an amazing thing here on planet earth. It's not just going to be a morsel or a crumb from the master's table. It's going to be an entire spiritual buffet for planet earth. I'm looking forward to it. Verse number 16, for if the first fruit be holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root be holy, so are the branches. That term holy means to be set apart for God. Paul is making it clear that Israel is still holy, even though they may not be acting holy. The first fruit and the root both represent the patriarchs. Israel has not been replaced. Israel is holy. They are still set apart. They are still God's chosen people. If you skipped ahead to verse number 28 and verse number 29, 
It says, as concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes, but as touching the election, they are beloved for the fathers. Notice the, notice the uh, punctuation at the end of fathers. It's not talking about God our Father. It's talking about the fathers of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and so forth, the patriarchs. They are beloved for the Father's sakes, for the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. You know what that word repentance means? Practically speaking, it's a change of mind. But it's also a turning in a different direction. God chose Israel. He gave them the gift. And the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. God is not going to turn away from someone that He has already chosen. And by the way, if we're saved, we become part of that elect. God's not going to turn away from us for that very principle right there. God is not... Hey, I would change my mind about me if I were God, but He's not me. And I'm glad that I have that security that God, when He makes a commitment, when He called me to salvation and I accepted then he's not going to change his mind. He's not going to repent of that calling. Verse number 17, it says, And if some of the branches be broken off, and thou being a wild olive tree wert grafted in among them, and with them partakest of the root and fatness of the olive tree, boast not against the branches, but if thou boast, thou bearest not the root, but the root thee. Natural branches and wild branches, some of them, verse number 5, the natural branches represents Israel from the time of Christ to the present. The wild olive branches that were grafted into that olive tree, and keep in mind the context is this olive tree is Israel, Abraham, the patriarchs, that's the root, that's the first fruit. Wild olive branches were grafted in after natural branches have been broken off. Notice in verse number 17, we find the word thou. Once again, it's singular, but it's referring to the Gentile church collectively, not a particular individual. And that's who Paul is writing to. He's writing to, to Gentile church members as a whole, as a group. By the way, in the Scripture, trees, you know, trees are used as an analogy all throughout the Scripture, but they're almost always referring to nations and kings and never to individuals. The vine and branches of John 15 uh, would be considered an exception, other than a close look at John 15 makes it clear that Jesus is speaking to the apostles, not necessarily the entire church. But that's another study for another time. As we begin to wind down the message here this morning, in verse number 18 through verse number 22, we see the right attitude of us Gentiles toward these truths that have been, been presented. Verse number 18 Boast not against the branches, but if thou boast, thou bearest not the root, but the root thee. Thou wilt say then, the branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well, because of unbelief, they were broken off, and thou standest by faith. Be not high-minded, but fear. 
For if God spared not the natural branches, take heed lest he also spare not thee. Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God on them which fell severity, but toward thee goodness, if thou continue in his goodness, otherwise thou also shalt be cut off. Once again, this is not individuals. This is the Gentile church collectively. God broke off the natural branches. He grafted in the Gentile church. And you know what? This replacement theology that says we've replaced Israel and God's not going back to Israel, that is doing nothing more than being high-minded. And God said, you better watch out. Paul's warning them. You start thinking that you have arrived and it's all about you. God says, I'm going back to Israel. And I believe we're getting closer and closer to that time, don't you? I mean, we are slap dab in the middle of Laodicea. The people's rights and everything's about civil and, and me, me, me. We're rich and increased in good. Hey, the church, the church is not just a group of people that that worship and grow in the Lord. The church has become merchandise and it has become massive conglomerate corporations and so forth. I mean, different ministries are just huge and multi-million dollar budgets and just on and on and on. Is the quality of Christianity improving? It's not. Not at all. It's getting worse and worse and worse. We are in Laodicea, folks. We better beware because um, God's going to say, you know what? What I, what I wanted to do with the Gentiles, it ain't working anymore. And I believe he's about done. Supersessionism is arrogant. And that's a fact. Verse number 23 through verse number 29, we see here that God will indeed restore Israel. He said, And they also, if they abide not still in unbelief, shall be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if thou wert cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and wert grafted contrary to nature into a good olive tree, how much more shall these, which be of the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. There's another, another point-blank phrase that makes it clear that God is going back to Israel just like he planned from the beginning. Verse 26, And so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes. But as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sakes. Revelation, the book of Revelation, I should say, makes no sense whatsoever if Christ has replaced Israel. And in verse 30 through 32, we see here that God is still in the saving business. Look at it with me. For as ye in times past have not believed God, yet have now obtained mercy through their unbelief, even so have these also now not believed that through your mercy 
they also may obtain mercy. For God hath concluded them all in unbelief, that he might have mercy upon all. Thank God that God is in the saving business. No matter what the Gentiles do collectively, no matter what Israel has done collectively, God is still in the saving business. In conclusion, our question as we began this study, I think that we've seen it answered thoroughly throughout Romans 11. You know, for someone to say that the church has replaced Israel, I I don't know what they do with Romans 11. There must be some cunningly devised fables. There must be some cunning craftiness because time and time again, Romans 11 makes it clear. When somebody tries to present that as a doctrinal issue with me, I, I don't even know how to argue with them. It's like if somebody would deny Romans 11, I, 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 how, how else do you argue with them over something that is crystal clear with no question about it? Has God cast away his people? The answer is emphatically N-O, no. God is not done with Israel. The church has not replaced Israel. Verse number 33 O the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, or who hath been his counselor, or who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. The way God deals with Israel is beyond our understanding. Balaam the prophet in the Old Testament couldn't understand it. The world cannot seem to grasp it. If you will believe God, you will understand it. If you will not believe God until you understand Him, then you will never, ever believe. I I don't feel I did a good job making that point. Let me say it once again. If you can't believe God unless you understand Him, then you're never, ever going to believe. If you'll believe Him take him at his word, then and only then will you start to understand him. You've got to have faith. It all begins with taking God at his word. In Romans chapter 4, verse number 3, For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Abraham didn't understand God. He just simply believed him. In Romans 4, 16, it says, Therefore... It is of faith that it might be by grace. To the end, the promise might be sure to all the seed, not to that only which is of the law, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. The church has not replaced Israel, but Abraham is the father of faith, and we, as wild olive branches, can be grafted in by faith, just simply by believing the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we can get in on that root and fatness of God's promises, not to Israel as a covenant, but rather the promise of faith. We can be saved if we just simply take God by faith, just like Abraham did. And then the last verse this morning is in Galatians chapter number 6. And we have to take this in light of Romans 11. Once again, the church has not replaced Israel, but we have gotten in on the blessings, the spiritual blessings, if you will. 
Paul says in Galatians 6.14, But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. That word circumcision has to do with becoming a Jew. Paul says it in Christ Jesus, it doesn't avail. And notice he says, and I, I wrap up with this, and as many as walk according to this rule, peace be on them and mercy and upon the Israel of God. This is the spiritual blessings. We've not replaced Israel, but by faith we can become part of that Israel of God, the spiritual blessings of salvation that God opened up up to us lost Gentiles who were on the outside looking in and God said, my people didn't receive me, but as many as received me, God said to them, I'll give power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on my name. Thank God for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.